For all the Sundays of Lent, Deacon Jay and I have shared how we were drawn to the Catholic Church and that for both of us, in different ways, it was the Eucharist that compelled us to enter the Church. When I share with non-Catholics why I believe in the mystery of the Eucharist, the usual response that I get is, well, it's only a symbol. I ask, well, why do you think that? And the usual reply goes something like this, it's impossible that bread can become the body of Jesus or wine can become his blood. And then I ask, why is it impossible? Aren't all things possible with God? And they usually have no answer. And when I tell them that the mystery of Christ's true presence in the Eucharist is in Scripture, they're usually shocked. So how should a practicing Catholic, like yourselves, explain the mystery of the Eucharist to a non-Catholic when you're asked, why do you believe? And please don't tell them, go talk to Father. <laughs> and my starting point is to come to an agreement on two essential principles. The first, to ask that person, what do you think about Christ? Don't tell me how you feel. I don't give a hoot how you feel. What do you think about Christ? If he's a nice guy, a philosopher, a well-intentioned, if perhaps naive rabbi, someone who wants to liberate people from oppression, or any of those things, we have no common ground for fruitful dialogue. What we ultimately have to agree on is what Jesus said of himself as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And the ramification of those six words, that there is a complete an indivisible union between the Father and the Son in terms of divine nature and divine will. Jesus is not merely a man, but also the eternal word of the eternal Father who became flesh and dwelt in time and history. The second principle we need to agree on is the very practical implication of this complete, indivisible union of the Father and the Son. That the word of the Father and the word of the Son are also one, fully united in purpose. Now, go to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 31, the first of two creation accounts. One critical phrase is repeated ten times. God said. What does that mean? At its most basic level, whatever God said became real. His word creates 
reality itself, where there was nothing, now there's something. Now, how can that be? Well, the answer is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. Moses encountered God, who revealed himself not with a proper name as the pagans gave to their gods. Instead, God identified himself by a unique self-description. Wa ahamer Elohim, El Moshe, Ea Asher Ea. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. What does such a self-description mean? God has always been himself, that he has no beginning and no end because he is being itself and thus the source of all being that he is not a part of his creation, as the pagans believed of their false gods, but rather the creator who brings all things, all creatures, all people into existence, not out of any need or necessity on God's part, but for the sheer joy it gives him to share his glory with his creatures. Now it's heavy stuff to be sure, but bear with me. God spoke his word, And his word became what he willed it to become. It could not become anything other than when he brought it into existence for. This is why the prophet Isaiah is inspired by God to say in chapter 55, verse 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not thither but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now we come to Jesus. The Apostle John begins his gospel with the same three words used in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, hinting, that something marvelous is about to happen, that there is to be a recreation, so to speak. And then the gospel adds, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The Son has always been, is now, and ever shall be, one in being with the Father. At a precise moment of history, the eternal word of the Father became one of us while always remaining one in being with the Father. Practically speaking, what does that mean? Whatever word the Son spoke, it, like his Father's word, became real. 
The word of the Son never returns to him empty, but accomplishes what he sends it out to do, that the Son's word, like his Father's word, makes real what he declares it to be. When Jesus, the word of the Father become flesh, said to the sick, be healed, they were healed. Nothing symbolic. When he said, your sins are forgiven, something only God could do, they were forgiven. Nothing symbolic. When he expelled demons, they fled in terror. Nothing symbolic. When he said to the corpse of a young man whose mother was widowed, get up, the young man was restored to life. Nothing symbolic. When he said to a little girl who had died and was being mourned over, little girl, I say to you, rise. She too was brought back from the realm of the dead. Nothing symbolic. When he said at the tomb of his deceased friend Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. The corpse that had been in the tomb for four days, well under the process of decomposition, was fully restored to life. Nothing symbolic. Jesus' word cured people from a distance. Like the demon-possessed daughter of a Syrophoenician woman or the servant of a Roman centurion who did not believe himself worthy to have Jesus come to his home, but trusted that the authority of Jesus' word, even from a distance, would accomplish the servant's healing, to which Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Those and so many other examples show that like his father's word, that accomplishes what he sends it out to do and does not return to him void, so too it is with the Son's word. Nothing symbolic. So when Jesus, in the presence of his disciples at that first Eucharist, says over bread, take, eat, this is my body, and over wine, take, drink. This is the cup of my blood. There are no legitimate grounds for doubting that bread is what Jesus says it is, his body, and wine is his blood. Because fully united with his Father in divine nature and divine will, Jesus' word has all the power and authority of his Father's word, making real what he sends it out to do. Then, 2,000 years ago, tonight, and until the end of time. This is why Jesus concludes, as we hear at the end of the consecration of the wine into his blood, he says, do this in what? 
Hang on to that for a moment. Did you notice that's a command? That's the language of command. The celebration of the Eucharist is not a request. It's not something to do a few times a year to help us feel good. It's a command he gave to his disciples, the apostles and their successors, until the end of time to offer this sacrifice perpetually. Why the command? Do this in memory of me. If it remains only bread and wine, if it's only a symbol, it would make no sense. Jesus' command means that he empowers, this is mind-boggling, he empowers the human words of sinful apostles and their successors to make bread and wine into his body and blood without any diminishment of his divine power despite the passage of time. So there is no difference in the reality that Jesus created at that first Eucharist and the reality of his presence that in this Eucharist and in all the Eucharists we are graced to participate in. The reality of Christ's true presence in the Eucharist, despite the passage of time, is underscored in the universal prayer of Christians, the Our Father, taught to us by Christ himself. We say in that prayer, give us this day our... Now, most Christians assume and rightly so, that we are to ask the Lord to provide for our daily needs. But there's another layer of meaning that many don't pay attention to. The expression daily bread in the Greek of the gospel is epiousion arton, which translates as give us the super essential bread. Did you hear that? Give us the super essential bread. Well, what is the super essential bread? The body of Christ, which gives life to both the soul and the body, that brings about the forgiveness of sins, that's the pledge of eternal life to those who believe, which is quite fitting when one considers that Jesus, the word of God who became flesh, was born among us where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Which means what? House of bread. In the celebration of every divine liturgy, of every holy mass, where eternity intersects with time. The power of Christ's words spoken over bread and wine by his priests create the reality of his presence. Bread and wine are graced to bear the 
infinite weight of his body and blood. This is why Jesus tells the Jews who are overwhelmed with this teaching in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 52 through 57. Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, so he who eats me will live because of me. Jesus makes no effort to pull his punches, to soft pedal his words. He does not speak in the comfortable language of symbol. Rather, he speaks in the very uncomfortable language of divine love, divine reality. 